Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Today's guest is Ruben Espinoza, professor of English at Arizona State University. He's the author of the monograph Masculinity and Marian Efficacy in Shakespeare's England and the co-editor of the collection Shakespeare and Immigration, both available through Rutledge. Today, we are discussing Shakespeare on the Shades of Racism, an urgent new book that brings a critique of racism and white supremacy to bear on plays that range from As You Like It to The Tempest and Othello. I'm excited to welcome Ruben to the podcast. Hi, John. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's uh, really my pleasure to be here. Shakespeare on the Shades of Racism was produced during the COVID pandemic a material condition that you explore in this book. The pandemic exposed it further and exacerbated the racism that is so ubiquitous in American life. How did this historical context influence your own writing? Yeah, so I mean, it was obviously a, a strange time for, for all of us, right, once it hit. And I was well underway with the book. I had actually the last... Um, the last talk I'd given was here at ASU before joining ASU. Um, you know, I, I came to give a talk in Tempe, and it, it was it was great to visit with with the folks here um, and return home. And shortly after that, maybe like two weeks after, we were we were on lockdown, and so it everything seemed to pause at that moment. Um, I have very gracious uh, series editors uh, for for the spotlight on Shakespeare uh, series, uh, through Rutledge and, and John Garrison and Kyle Pavetti were, have been great throughout. And I had already asked for extensions on, on this, on this book. It was just taking a bit longer to write, uh, and, and trying to get it right. Uh, but like everybody else, I felt frozen in that moment. And so it just, it, that itself and thinking about, uh, the, the pandemic itself and the, the shift, you know, it already, it had an effect on, on my thinking and my production, um, and it was coming after, I mean, really these extraordinarily, I mean, for so many traumatic events, right? I mean, I, I was in El Paso, Texas, um, you know, the, they had set up camps within the vicinity there, right? Where they were, family separations were taking place, you know, children were being kept. Um, you've seen the images probably and heard the audio. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, they were making these makeshift camps underneath the bridge and in, in, that leads to Juarez. And people unfamiliar with that, uh, the city of El Paso and Juarez probably, you know, can't imagine how close they are in proximity. So if you walk over, for example, the downtown bridge in El Paso, you will 
directly you know, set foot in downtown Juarez. So the two cities really come up against each other. So these camps weren't isolated. Individuals were walking over those bridges on a daily basis. My students were walking over those bridges. So all of that, I mean, you know, you, you have this this feeling, right, of, of, of explicit racism. We know that, you know, the the designs of the previous administration were were precisely right to to make these individuals suffer and so that that was already part of my thinking as i was crafting this book and and writing it suddenly it pauses and then you have the events of that summer with the murder of george floyd that really sent me on a on a tailspin i mean i think you know it was a watershed moment for so many and i'm not trying not to center the book here right but but in terms of thinking of how it affected me I, i did feel like a lot of what I was writing suddenly shifted, right? And suddenly there was more to think about. And it was a difficult moment. I, I, I had most of it written by that point. I was doing revisions, you know, and, and really one chapter working working out some some ideas there. But, um, you know, I, I reached out to friends, you know, and, and mentors and, and Ayanna Thompson here at ACMRS and uh, just thought, do I have to re-envision this book or, or not? And, and I mean, I think the, the, the consensus was not, you know, just finish the book that I imagined, uh, include an afterword, right, or, or, you know, a forward if I wanted and, and uh, address the issues. And so that's what I decided to do. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, on some level, I think what, what, I, what I took from it is, I mean, you, you talk about these recursive acts of racism, right, and it just proved once again, but it, it felt like suddenly, because the world was felt paused, right, people were finally listening and seeing. Um, so, there was, you know, some some hope, I guess, behind that, but it it really was an interesting, interesting period and dynamic uh, for for you know working on on issues like this. And uh, yeah, it it was emotional. I mean, I, I have to admit, it was it was really emotional writing it, and it was emotional reading it. And uh, so that 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 was the the effect. And then um, yeah. Uh, everything else is just kind of exhausted <laughs> after finishing the book and thankfully getting it in by my, my last deadline. Yeah, you talk a little bit in the book about this sense of um, political powerlessness that we sometimes feel. You talk about you're, you're heading to a conference, you're in the El Paso um, airport, and you see um, ICE agents, and um, there's a sense that when we see... Um, instances like that, that confronting the agent or saying something will only exacerbate the problem. Can, can you talk about your own, um, the, the development of your own response or, or how you think about um, those events? Yeah, I mean, so that that hasn't seized. And, and this has been quite frankly, you know, living in El Paso, the better part of, of our lives, that there's a hostility toward um, the Border Patrol, right, and agents and you know that there is, you know, um, there's efforts not to, I don't know, vilify them uh, by so many, and I, I understandable. I mean, you know, a lot of these individuals are cousins, they're you know spouses, friends, and so uh, there's, you know, but clearly it's a job for for so many, right? But the representation of that entity and what it means in terms of perceptions of belonging for those, you know, who are. Uh, uh, U.S. citizens, right, and and those who are undocumented. Either way, you know, there there, there is this, this real sense of 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 an attempt to make you feel as if you don't belong. And so, um, you know, one local writer uh, 
Benjamin Alir Sainz. He was a, you know, like the first Latino to win the Penn Faulkner Award for a short story collection. Everything begins and ends at the Kentucky Club. He he's wrote an essay long ago about being an undergraduate student and being, you know, consistently asked for his documentation by the same officers, right, who were just, you know, essentially. Um, you know, trying to to make him feel unwelcome as somebody who was born here, who lives here, and so all of that's in place in in many ways. And you know, it it, it feels like that there there is that entity at every point. People unfamiliar with the borderland. If you drive out of El Paso in any direction, east, west, north, um, you will come to a checkpoint, and it's a it's a you know border patrol checkpoint essentially, um, and where they ask you your citizenship. So this is a part of your daily lives. When this transpired then and when you begin to see the treatment of children suddenly that 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 does feel like an incredible violation and as an adult walking through the airport as somebody who's you know knows the history of this right it 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 felt uh, awful and it 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 does feel like a moment where you think about you know your own sense of courage right do you want to confront them but as i mentioned there is also a fear of what are the repercussions going to be against those children right uh, how are these agents going to react in the face of that kind of you know confrontation right and so i have to say i mean it is it is an awful feeling of powerlessness and one where you know i feel shame i feel like more should be done and i'm not alone in that i think many of the people in our community grappled with that uh, one way we addressed it you know, as a community in El Paso was to organize food banks, is to organize dinners, is to find shelter for those who who needed it. And so there are ways of, of approaching you know that through through other forms of social justice. But that in itself, and seeing those children was just horrifying. And um, I think I, I mentioned in the book, right, seeing Beto O'Rourke and feeling like, okay, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I. I I'm not. I'm not somebody who's who's kind of a fanboy when it when it comes to him. I, I recognize the, the nature of politicians, but I, I did, you know, go and wish him my best in terms of trying to unseat Ted Cruz, who has been, uh, you know, kind of horrifically against immigrants. And you see it specifically in in El Paso, and 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 you know, the effects of that are they are. Um, you know, part of our lived experiences and, and traumatic and more importantly, right, rather recently with a massacre at Walmart. We see the real world effects of that. This book, Shakespeare on the Shades of Racism, um, aims to take the cultural currency of Shakespeare and to, to confront these social injustices. Um, it seems to me um, what you're discussing relates to your reading of Henry V um, and Henry's rhetoric of solidarity and national belonging that is um, strategic and kind of Machiavellian and, and insincere. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's a play I love. I love to teach. And, you know, I, I've written about this and, and thought about, you know, Flewellen's kind of sense of confidence in his Welsh identity, you know, always as a marker of something that the play offers uh, as a form of resistance to the jingoism that that play espouses. Right. Um, and I, you know, I think in, in many ways, that's 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 precisely the case. It's this invitation to be part of a community, right, an invitation to feel a sense of belonging when the reality is there is no belonging and there will never be belonging. Uh, but for moments, right, we have on the stage somebody who is confronting that king, right, who is reminding that king of the older Welsh traditions, right? And 
in many ways it works, I think, because we can anchor that in kind of historical accuracy in terms of thinking about Welsh history, right? Um, it hits, I think, and it, you know, I think resounds in, in, a, in a powerful way with, with our colleagues and, and new historicists who are looking at that play. I'm less invested in that. I, I think I, I'm more interested in having students think about, you know, the, the specifically the violence at the end when Fluellen uh, confronts Pistol, right, in and, and that moment and really kind of taking stock. And these are my cultural traditions, right, and I will, I will not be, you know, uh, the object of ridicule for you. And I think that sense of confidence is something that um, I would like, I think my, when I was thinking about my colleagues at UTEP, right, and thinking about even in high schools, right, our students to feel that sense of confidence and specifically Latinx students, right, to, to kind of come to uh, their studies and come to, you know, their, 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 their kind of goals in life, right, with, with, with a real sense of confidence in their, their cultural traditions and, and their, their, their sense of self and um, as somebody who grew up in this way, I, I readily recognize the, the, the way that I was made to feel shame for my bilingualism, for the color of my skin, for, you know, going into a place where my mother's broken English was, was ridiculed, right? And, and feeling in the same way that I mentioned going into an airport and feeling like you want to stand up for these young kids, right? Feeling a sense of defensiveness for my mother, but also afraid of that confrontation, right? And what will transpire. And so in a lot of ways, I think of uh, a place like this, you know, allow us to think about, about the way that this is, you know, um, yeah, it, it is a, a kind of a malicious, you know, uh, uh, move. And, and also I think importantly, right. The way Shakespeare has been maneuvered, utilized, right. In that same vein, right. And to, to promote certain perceptions about, the superiority of, of the English language, right, and and, and whiteness. And it's, um, I'm talking about Shakespeare's canon, it's uh, strategic use in colonial efforts and, um, yeah, as you say, the, the reinforcement of, of white supremacy and in, in cultural institutions. Um, well, I think this also touches on one of the very distinctive qualities of this book, which is that it, um, fluidly moves between 20th century and 21st century cultural texts and um, early modern texts. Um, you uh, explicitly argue that our historical moment should shape um, our encounter with these um, older texts. Can you talk about the stakes of that choice? Yeah, I, I think I think this always happens, and and you know. Um... I'm from a generation of scholars who came into this where people were already asking, you know, what, what comes after new historicism? It, it had a hold on our field for so long. Um, and so in, in many ways to think about uh, the influence of new historicism and specifically, right, the, the, the consistent calls of anachronism when it came to race studies, right, in, in early modern studies, um, you know, it, it created a, a, an unwelcoming sign right here for scholars who were looking to interrogate these issues with contemporary understandings of race in mind. And, and it only applied to race. I mean, that, that only applies to race. And so there, there's a desire to keep the, the past, you know, uh, kind of, at, you know, free of, of, of these ideas. And so I, I think the stakes are incredibly high. And I'm not, you know, I'm, in no way am I doing something novel in in my approach to this, but I, I will say, you know, I, I look back to Jean Howard and thinking about new historicism, right, and these issues, and you know, she specifically 
you know, brings to the table the idea that none of us can look at the past objectively, right? None of us can look backwards objectively. And so this is something that we have to confront and think about. And so in a lot of ways, I mean, I think, I think the stakes are incredibly high in terms of the work that is transpiring here. This particular series, I think, allows for the kind of movement, free movement that I was able to embrace, which I have to admit, I, I'm not altogether comfortable with doing right in the back of my mind was how are my colleagues going to receive this right and to think about this and of course it's it's the kind of very strategically deployed argument about you know the lack of 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 uh, discipline when it comes to research here right and this 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 particular piece very much invited that kind of fluidity and so i i enjoyed writing it quite a bit but i i, I will be honest in saying like there, there was a bit of anxiety surrounding okay you know this is what the series calls for this is what it is john and kyle were very very much embracing my view for it and saying you know run with that i think this is going to be great and so so i did um but if we can think about this and then you know and asking about the stakes right this for me is an invitation for students to feel comfortable about bringing their own positionalities to the table when confronting any piece of literature here right and and so often we are asked to kind of you know you know kind of you know, leave the baggage at the door here, right? And and, and come in and look at this in a, in a different way. And I think that 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 cuts off so many perspectives of the literature that can make it incredibly interesting. And and you know, our ability to learn from our students and and what they bring to the table when it comes to that. And so, if they see that in the research that is being produced, then maybe there is a sense of 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 confidence on their part to to approach it in the same vein. And so, when that happens, then then we we do get you know kind of new modes and new ways of thinking and you know essentially it's it's a remaking of Shakespeare right and of modern literature. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I see that the the gatekeeping aspect of of talk of anachronism or the specter of anachronism as as kind of um, implicitly about who gets to talk about Shakespeare, right? Um, and and another thing. Um, in Shakespeare on the Shades of Racism is you take up um, plays that are not typically thought of as the race plays um, or they're, they're not conventionally um, they haven't been mined for insights about race in the period. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your reading of As You Like It? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one play that I, I enjoy teaching quite a bit uh, because of my interest in issues of border studies and immigration, right? And so you do have you know, the idea of refugees, right, in exile, and um, so already the play the play invites us to think about those issues. But uh, there's a specific line in there, um, you know, when when you have Celia saying, you know, that they're going to Rosaline and Celia are going to to disguise themselves, right? And Celia is going to, to you know, Ros- Rosaline decides to cross-dress. Celia decides to kind of paint herself. In other words, she's putting herself in brown face. And she, she essentially says, and, you know, they describe her later as being somewhat browner than her brother, right? Uh, she besmirches her face is what she says. And on some level, you think about, is this the kind of, you know, uh, just essentially getting dirty from traveling, right? But th- there's no indication of that because there's no attention to that on the part of, Rosaline cross-dressing, right, and it's specifically about the, the 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 sister, right, and 
in this way, it invites us to think about the way we think about immigration and immigrants, right? And the color of their skin and how they are perceived in terms of their inferiority. For me, it creates a space to talk about so many issues surrounding race, right? So you have her, Rosaline's stature is higher, Celia's is lower, she is now browner of face. And so in many ways, it reminds us of the portraiture, right, of white aristocratic families with their black servants, right, in this vein, who are often diminutive, right, and, and much smaller and deliberately positioned so to uh, to to put forward a sense of, 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 of white supremacy, right, and superiority. And so it, it opens a space to think about these issues and to talk about them, I think, with with, with students, right, and for us to, to reimagine the plays and the valence of the plays in this vein. And rather importantly, not how it's constructing the refugee per se, right, but how it's constructing whiteness. And so back to your question of employing these particular plays, I think it's, it's important and a lot of scholars are currently you know, taking this, this work on is to think about how whiteness is being constructed through early modern literature, right, through Shakespeare. And, and um, it's, it's, it's an invitation for us to think about that. I felt this book was intellectually rigorous and insightful, but also one that any interested reader could pick up and engage with. Um, it is a book that w- that I think could sit comfortably on the shelf next to books like Sana Hesse Coates's Between the World and Me or Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider. Uh, how did you approach the writing of the book? What sort of audience did you have in mind for it? And how did you craft a style to meet that audience? Yeah, thanks for that question. And more importantly, I, I'd be remiss not to say thank you for putting me in amazing company uh, in, in that question. But um, I, the, so the series itself demands, I think, uh, and, and asks for, for, for authors to, to imagine a more general audience, right? And somebody who's not going to necessarily be a scholar of Shakespeare, right? Somebody who can come to this series and read books that I think are, are, are obviously engaging and, and interesting. And so I, the series has a lot of great, great uh, works within it. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, I mean, this is what I was thinking of, of a more general audience, but, you know, to, to your question, I, I really was thinking about any kind of novice reader coming to it who does not have a grasp of, of race studies in Shakespeare here, right. Who might not know how they can approach a text and see like th- this Shakespeare can be meaningful to those issues because in so many ways there are assumptions that are made. I, I remember early on in my career taking a transatlantic flight uh, and the, the gentleman I was sitting next to, you know, we struck up a conversation and he asked what I did. And I told him, well, you know, I you know, study Shakespeare, you know, specifically race and Shakespeare and, and his, his, his very kind of, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, honest, honest question here, right. was, is there race in Shakespeare? Right. And, and he's curious, like, you know, what came to mind for him was the Merchant of Venice, right? And, and so very quickly, you know, of course, we cover the race plays, right? And think about blackness in Shakespeare, but that, that's specifically it. And my actually knee-jerk response to that, right? When he said that, I was like, well, there's, you know, if, if you're talking outside of whiteness, right? Yeah, there, there's also others. And, and, and really, it's a moment where you see, and so many of, of my colleagues, right, and other scholars have noted this, right, is the way that whiteness remains neutral in Shakespeare studies. And so in this vein, I think if somebody's coming to a book like this and thinking about racism, Shakespeare, the expectation is going to be, it is going to be just about Othello, right? It is going to be about Shylock. But I, 
I hope that the book invites us to think about it in different ways here, right? And to think about the themes in the plays and how they can be themselves, you know, kind of used as a vehicle to, I think, you know, what are the important conversations in our, in our, in our present moment? Did you have rules for yourself or, or did you, was there um, advice from the editors? Because I, I often feel like, um, writing in a public-facing mode is sometimes d- discouraged in academic writing, or it's considered not quite academic enough, or it should be more qualified, or something like that. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, I, I didn't set rules for myself deliberately, wanting to embrace this kind of you know what what I was trying to put forward in this, and so. I'm not a one who takes many risks, but I, I felt like, you know, the moment demanded some of that. Um, and, and certainly, you know, this was pre George Floyd, but certainly after that, I felt like, okay, I, I think the moves that I made were the right moves. I, and you're absolutely right. I think public facing writing is incredibly difficult genre. I, you know, I, I cut my teeth with it when I was invited to write a piece for the Sundial, which is housed here at, at ACMRS. Uh, and it was the inaugural issue of the Sundial. I was not yet uh, here at ASU, uh, but Ayana reached out to me and said, hey, look, we're putting this together. It's online. Um, what do you think about writing a short piece for it? And I had a different idea for it, something that was a little bit more you know, with, within the wheelhouse of, you know, more traditional academic writing. Uh, and then the massacre at, at Walmart happened in El Paso. Uh, my deadline was about two weeks after that. And I just sat down and I wrote. And I, I, it was just a moment where my anger, quite frankly, uh, just spilled onto the page. And, you know, I was thinking about Sir Thomas More, you know, and, and this, this idea of welcoming immigrants, but really also taking to heart the fact that so many of these plays do espouse right uh, anti-immigrant sentiments, including Sir Thomas More, and so you know, and thinking about the way Shakespeare has been used, and Steve Bannon had recently uh, kind of funded, and we learned later <laughs> he wasn't using the money actually right to to fund these walls, but funded a wall. It's like a mile stretch up to beautiful mountain uh, that separates El Paso from Juarez, and so it's this kind of eyesore of a one mile wall that does nothing, quite frankly, um, that, that he put up. Um, and, you know, Steve Bannon has a history with Shakespeare. And so that there's, there's, you know, these, this recognition of these individuals who are trying to foreclose on certain individuals, right, as being a part of this nation that, that really, really angered me. And so I, I wrote that piece and, and it came out um, and it, I felt energized. I think the response was very positive from a lot of my colleagues and individuals. And so in approaching the book, I thought, okay, I, I want to try to harness that, that same kind of you know, um, I felt righteous anger, you know, at, at what was happening. And um, that was my only rule. I mean, I, I felt like don't, don't take your foot off the pedal, really, you know, go forward confidently. And, and as I mentioned early on, John, I mean, I, I won't pretend that I wasn't anxious about reception. And I still am not. I, I feel like, when is the other shoe going to drop? And thankfully, the responses so far have been kind. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I, I do know what what this opens up, and I, I do feel like you know, you know pe- people will have much to take issue with, you know, when if they want and when they want to, um, and so I'm okay with that, and I sit comfortably with that. I, I don't have advice. I, I really don't. Aside from you know, really, with public facing pieces, is, is is allowing yourself and really to center your kind of positionality. This is what I want to put forward. In terms of the writing, I, I recently uh, admitted, you know, we 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 are 
here at, at ACMRS, we're putting together, you know, various mentorship programs. And some of them have to do with writing. And I undertook like the worst, I think, uh, you know, kind of practices when it came to writing. I was, you know, my, my, my wife was, was very pregnant at the time. We, we found out we were pregnant with our, our now soon to be two year old about a month before lockdown. And so it just, you know, was this, this situation where I was hurrying to get this done before the baby uh, arrived. And so I, found myself writing into you know the late hours and sometimes early morning and not getting rest not taking care of myself but i it also felt urgent i felt like i i, I wanted to get this out and that's you know that's that's where i was in that, in that regard so don't do that that's what i, what I would say I, mean, I think in the aftermath of that it was like utter exhaustion right and then no time to rest because we had a new baby but, yeah. okay I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um l- let me also take the opportunity um for listeners who might not know that venue the sundial um it's a wonderful resource if you're interested in the public humanities if you're interested in early modern studies or even if you're not you know go to that venue i think there was a series on um sort of scholarly responses to Kim Hall's things of darkness that, that came out um, maybe last year. That's uh, wonderful. All of the essays part of that um, suite are, are great. So um, please, if you're listening, um, read uh, Ruben's book and also um, go to the sundial and uh, dive in. Um, it, it, in this book, you bring attention to the figure of Barbary um, who is referenced in Shakespeare's play Othello, but is embodied and given voice in Toni Morrison's kind of riff on Othello titled Desdemona. Um, can you tell us about that character and what Barbary's silence in Shakespeare and her speech in Morrison, she's renamed in Morrison's play, right? Um, right. So race and gender. Yeah, right, right. She's renamed Saran and it's, it's a great, it's a great piece. If, if, if listeners haven't, haven't read um, Tony Morrison's uh, Desdemona, they, they should. And unfortunately there, I've have yet to come across uh, full length videos of the performance and because it involves, you know, song by, by incredible artists. Right. I, I think that there's been a reluctance to reproduce it right uh, live. Um, I hope that happens one day, but um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so my attention to Barbary, you know, I was, I was, I thought about it long before when I was doing work on Shakespeare and immigration. Actually, Peter Erickson wrote a wonderful essay for that collection. And in it, it's called Race, Words, and Othello. And in it, he's looking at three distinct moments, right, when, uh, you know, attention to race and racism is brought up in, in the play. And, and this was, I, I feel, 
one of the most understudied moments, right, is a reference to Barbary, which, you know, Peter Erickson makes clear. Because there is no name given, and when we think about Imtiaz Abib's, you know, incredible work on, on Black lives in the English archives, right, and how there are so many nameless Black individuals in early modern London, right, we, we can readily, you know, recognize that, that these individuals are, are enslaved, right? And so that particular attention to Barbary and, and to, to the namesake, I think, you know, struck, struck me as, as incredibly profound in, in Erickson's work. And he really follows that thread to the end where, you know, by the end of it, the, the play, Amelia is seemingly, you know, uh, substituting for Barbary, who might have made Desdemona feel a sense of, of superiority herself right and so yeah it's it's a great it's a great piece if, if you haven't read it you know one should uh but tony morrison picks up that strand as well and is really thinking about barbary right and so it's imagined in this kind of a underworld of sorts right you know afterworld right after death and i think giving voice right to these characters who don't have voices is an incredibly provocative uh approach to thinking about the value of shakespeare and the way that certain voices are silenced uh more importantly in terms of the work that i was doing right I, I felt like this, this this is a testament to how often Black women are silenced, right? And how often Black women are marginalized, even in plays that seem to espouse um, attention to gender inequities, right? And so we, we can look at Othello and think about the strength of Desdemona in the first half, right? And so much, you know, has been written on that particular issue and like what happens, right? What happens to her? Uh, but there's no attention to the reference to the Black woman within that play, right? It's a backdrop. And often that's that's what individuals like that serve to be. And, and we know this. We know this in, you know, popular culture in our day, right? We think about, you know, the shows that I was exposed to growing up, right? Where if there was a Black character, it was typically the Black friend here, right? Or, you know, within movies, a kind of trope of the, the magic Negro, right? And so in this way, it's, it's uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, important for us to, to, to recognize that. And what, what Morrison does, I think, is... is really really provocative uh yeah it's and it's one of two works that i think speak and 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 can really be coupled with the teaching of othello in a meaningful way the the other is keith hamilton cobb's uh, american war right yeah and so it's, it's also a piece where you allow a black actor to speak back to the audience in terms of what perceptions of othello are from from a white perspective right yeah, I, I got to see Cobb's play um, a few years ago, and it is um, an incredible. It's a one uh, man, one you know, a one hander, um, an amazing experience. Um, that if you again, listeners, if you have the opportunity, please um, you know get a ticket. Um, and this, I think, leads well into um, teaching and thinking about the responsibility of of us in the classroom. Um, I in my research I came across this course that you've taught titled Marlowe Shakespeare Subversion and Social Disquietude, which really jumped out to me. Um, can you tell us about that class, or more generally, how you approach the classroom, and um, what, what do you assign? You talked a little bit about um, juxtaposing uh, Shakespeare and uh, Toni Morrison. What kinds of teaching goals do you have um, for that class, or in general? Um, and how does teaching fit into your scholarly identity? 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, have to, I have to say with that title, clearly I was going for the longest title in the catalog there. Uh, but no, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I you know, I'd, I'd been kind of diving into to the social disquietude in the 1590s specifically. Right. And thinking about how to bring some of those issues to bear. And a, a lot of that had to do with high taxation, uh, you know, anti-immigrant sentiments in, in early modern London, right? Uh, and then also, right, this, this this desire for for empire, essentially, right? And, and you know, the, the, the wars in Ireland. Uh, and so really kind of trying to allow my students to engage not, not only with Shakespeare, but with somebody I think who, who who engages, I, I think, more provocatively with these issues, right? Uh, Christopher Marlowe. And so it was uh, an opportunity to have students, you know, you know, study a playwright that isn't often offered in, in classes. Uh, you know, they're required to take a Shakespeare course. They're not required to take a course on Christopher Marlowe. And so it was a way of thinking about that. But like most of the classes I teach, I, I always do it from a cross-historical perspective. So I was thinking about, you know, the, our own perceptions of social disquietude, right? And not only in terms of anti-immigrant sentiments or racism, but really thinking about, uh, you know, uh, um, these issues of homophobia, right, that, that persist. And so I think it's incredibly, uh, for me, I, I think, uh, provocative for, the, for them to think about the way that, in many ways, the way Christopher Marlowe is engaging and dealing with these issues is is much more progressive. And I think, you know, uh, in in many ways, it 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 allows for that kind of subversion, right, of of these issues in ways that it, I think sometimes people are not willing to take in our present moment, and certainly not within at that point that felt like the academy, right. And so, you know, there's this a, a great body of, of, of scholarship available that, that does this right but I think is also understudied and so in, in one way it's you know allowing our present moment to speak to the past and the past to the present right uh, but also as I, I mentioned before coupling it with with contemporary works right with with you know uh, uh, cultural products from the present that, that, that allows students you know to see why this continues to matter and to really recognize the legacy of that, that literature right uh, and, and how it persists and so uh you know it's not uncommon to for me to assign them tony morrison's playing in the dark for example here right which is which is not about early modern england which is you know it's, it's about literary studies in america but but also for them to recognize like what what have they been consuming as students in high school and in their undergraduate careers to this point and and who gets to decide right and i, I think that those are the moments where I think it's it's interesting, um, and so yeah, I, I I really enjoyed that because if somebody looks at the syllabus and says like, we're reading Ansaldúa, we're reading Leo Chávez, you know, alongside you know, or or Carol Anderson, right, alongside these early modern texts, like what what is it that we're doing? Well, let's really kind of allow ourselves to think more broadly. This makes me think of of some of the recent legislative um, pushes to ban critical race studies in high school classrooms, um, elementary school, you know, middle schools. Um, How has that uh, shaped education in in Arizona where you teach or how students approach Shakespeare? Yeah, I mean, so this is something that that's coming right in in, in multiple states, and and I, I think there's a, a clear mobilizing where you know once critical race theory was made the you know proverbial boogeyman, right? Uh, many jumped on board to attack that. I, I think, I mean, the fact that we are actively working through a multi-million dollar grant, right, on on pedagogies, right, and 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 teaching practices that could 
open the door to talk about these particular issues is important when we have to take into account the precarity, right, that a lot of, uh, you know, educators in high school are facing with some of these, you know, uh, laws that are passing. And so, you know, on, on, on some level, I mean, this is, this is something where, where we have to be mindful of that. It's, it's not just a moment where we can say, like, well, who cares? We have to be doing this right way. But there, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake there for people's livelihoods, right? How this is impacting the students, I think, is, is yet to be seen, right? Um, we, we are going to, you know, see what, what their literacy is in terms of understandings of, of race and racism and racial justice, right, coming into the college classroom. And that's not to say that it's very high at the moment. I think so many of us who teach, you know, on issues of race and early modern literature confront this and see this. Ian Smith has talked about this at, at length, and I think that, that that is absolutely, he's absolutely right. You know, we, we have to teach a certain literacy for our students to come into the classroom. So I don't see that changing so much now, but I think I'm making sure that students are recognizing that this is a deliberate attempt, right? That this is a way to sustain systems that promote racial inequities, right? That promote white supremacy uh, in place is important for them to see. And so in Arizona specifically, before I arrived here, right, we had the big controversy with, uh, with uh, the banning of, of Shakespeare's The Tempest. And it wasn't an actual banning. And what, what actually transpired, it's, it's a, you know, an, an interesting story, but uh, students, uh, uh, students came together for an assembly and essentially Dolores Huerta, a civil rights activist, right, uh, who worked along Cesar Chavez, she, she came to speak to students. And it was after a law had been passed in Arizona that allowed law enforcement essentially to racial profile. They could pull anybody over without any you know, reason aside to ask for documents and she was you know speaking to them and saying that they needed to use their you know political voice right they needed to when they were you know turned 18 to make sure that they mobilized and voted and she said because right now i'll tell you she says to them that republicans hate latinos uh and at that point uh the superintendent uh, a staunch republican took issue with this right this is in tucson tucson independent school district at the time tom horn is his name uh he's running now for superintendent of a different district on the issue specifically of banning critical race studies which is no surprise but in any case at that moment he called another assembly and sent his aide to go and tell them that republicans did not infect latinos right and the students turned around in protest and they raised their fists so so what transpired essentially is is you know after doing some legwork uh they they discovered that many of these students were in a mexican American Studies program offered at, at Tucson Independent School District, right? And so Tom Horn essentially made it his mission to dismantle that program and succeeded. Uh, you know, he put this forward, uh, they dismantled it, and the way they did so is they said, you cannot touch, you cannot teach, I'm sorry, any piece of literature that will uh, provoke discussions about race, racism, uh, colonialism, in the classroom, if you can believe it. And so it wasn't that they banned the books themselves, but educators now face stiff penalties, including upwards of $100,000, right? Uh, uh, you know, fines for doing this. And so they had to come together and essentially identify the books that would, you know, potentially allow for those conversations to 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 take shape in the classroom, right? And it's it's through no urging of their own. Even if a student read the Tempest, for example, and said, like, this strikes me as a play that could be about, you know, slavery, right? And already they were in violation of the law. And so they put together this long list and 
Shakespeare's The Tempest was included among that list. And and this is a reason it got national attention. Suddenly it was like they're banning Shakespeare in Arizona and it became a huge issue. And it was in the courts for some time. Thankfully that that law was overturned, right? But now there are other efforts to to go forward. I, I mentioned this this backstory because I think it's important to recognize that a year after the dismantling of the Mexican American Studies program, the University of Arizona conducted uh, their research on this and they found that students who had been a part of that Mexican American Studies program had higher graduation rates, higher college enrollment. So clearly it was a program that was allowing these students to be comfortable and successful and go forward. And it's hard not to read behind that, right? These efforts to subjugate and to keep, you know, Latinxes down. But as Peter Holland noted, and I think it's it's very important, you know, in his own his own uh, essay on this on this particular controversy, is you have a school with the Mexican American Studies program where sixty percent of the students are Mexican American, Chicanxes, Latinxes, right, uh, and forty percent are not. And so he notes that those other students, right, those probably predominantly white students who are also taking that course, this is their only opportunity to really, you know, encounter these works that talk about the experiences for Chicanexes within our society, right? And so suddenly, you know, foreclosing on that, it's not just an injustice to the Chicanexes, right? But it's also an injustice to the students who are wanting to, 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 to embrace this and learn about this. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, I think Ayanna Thompson, your colleague at uh, Arizona State, talks a bit about um, direct talk as a goal in the classroom, right? This is a classroom where um, questions about race, uh, gender, sexuality can be raised. Um, statements can be made about these topics and like really inviting that for, for students. Um, and maybe we can circle back to your reading of The Tempest, which is in um, Shakespeare on the Shades of Racism. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's. I think it's an incredibly rich play. I mean, I, I you know, uh, I know it's not not the favorite of many, but for me, I think it offers an entry point to think about the way that we construct, you know, the, these ideas of of hierarchies, right? Social hierarchies, and so you know, the the play gives us a roadmap to that very early on when you have the storm, and when you have the king on board here, right? And 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 you know, Gonzalo is is advocating on behalf of that and saying like, you need to get this under control. Keep in mind who you have on board, he says, right, to the, the bosun. And the bosun says to him, essentially, like, nobody that I value more, right? In other words, himself. And it's, it's, I'm paraphrasing here, right? But that that's, I think, a, a very important moment, I think, for us to see and to think about, like, what lives matter, right? And if we're thinking, you know, what lives do we value more and why? And so already it creates entry points to those conversations. And then you have, obviously, you know, attention to colonialism and enslavement, right? Prospero and Caliban, uh, and that the dynamic that is in place there. And then you have the references then to uh, the king's daughter being married off to to the king of Tunis, right? And Bernadette Andrea gave an incredibly powerful uh, plenary talk a few years back at the SAA uh, that addressed that particular issue. And you know, the conversations that take shape even within. Uh, criticism of the play here, right, where we imagine the geographic distance, right, and how 
Tunis is actually much closer to them, right, than, you know, when you're thinking about Milan and Naples. And so it is this dynamic where foreignness is being constructed as something that was, you know, threatening to absorb, you know, certain individuals to to take them away. And so in a lot of ways, I think it, it's it's a perfect way to think about the issues that I think are important in our in our present moments here, right, and perceptions of of who who is is superior, right? Uh, what language is superior? Caliban attends to that very early on. What systems of, of religious belief are superior here, right? And how do we imagine them? And so in, in many ways, I think it, it creates opportunities for students really to, to, to engage with that and think about that. And I mean, John, I, I have to say, like, I, I you know, and the, the fact that, you know, we are 2022 and there are still individuals, individuals who will claim that this play is not about race is baffling to me. And these are prominent, incredibly intelligent individuals, right? Who I just, I think, are reluctant, right, to want to confront the fact that there is racism in their society, even if they don't, themselves don't feel you know that they are racist and so um yeah it's 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 uh it's 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 a play that i i enjoy teaching quite a bit it's not a play that i, I think this is a problem right people are like do you like that play well there's like there's not a lot to like in terms of you know what happens in the play it's not a feel-good play but i, I do think that it, it it has many entry points to, to important conversations yeah it, it is baffling um and uh, uh, somewhat embarrassing, you know, it's, it's somewhat embarrassing for, um, people of such, um, intellectual, uh, credit to, to hang on to that, um, kind of shibboleth, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, stepping back, um, Shakespeare on the shades of racism is part of a robust wave of brilliant books that center discussions of race and dealing with early modern writers. Um, could you talk about where you see pre-modern critical race studies going? Um, how do you think the field will grow? And, and what are your hopes for the future direction of this scholarship? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I mean, I, I, I feel like when I mentioned earlier on how when I came into the field, right, and going to, you know, early SAAs and whatnot, and people were having the conversations like, what's what's after new historicism, right? What's like the next big thing? I think this is it. I, I think it's arrived. And I think, you know, we are, we are seeing it now uh, at, at the moment. And I'm, I'm incredibly excited and heartened by it. Uh, at the same time, as, as I and many other of my colleagues have noted, right, it's, it's hard to see that because this is in vogue, right? And this is very popular at the moment that there are people jumping on the bandwagon without doing the necessary scholarship, right? Uh, and legwork to enter into these particular conversations. And so I think that's I think that's where we are at the moment. For me, it feels like there are so many more resources now available than when I was uh, an early career scholar, you know, that that provide a roadmap for this that allow readers even confronting this, you know, for the first time and picking up a book, you write a collection uh, where they can see, you know, references, right, where they can see the bibliography and see that there's a long kind of rich history, right, of, of critical race studies in, in early modern studies, right? And so I think uh, I think as soon as that becomes, you know, kind of, uh, recognizable to many, right, and, and for us to acknowledge that, you know, this this will flourish in, in the way that it has been. I feel lucky to be part of this center. You know, I was, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a cluster hire that Ayanna Thompson put together for Arizona State University, and it was very deliberate in conjunction with the creative writing department, you know, and, and Natalie Diaz. And so she came together with Natalie Diaz, and they wanted to diversify 
you know, uh, the, the English department at, at ASU. And so, and specifically, you know, I think Ayana had in mind to create a kind of powerhouse in early modern studies here. And so, you know, I, I came in with, with a very talented uh, Madeline Syed and incredible, you know, Randy Adams and Lisa Barksdale Shaw. And I think, you know, we are, we are creating something, I think, very, very, uh, important at ASU, uh, not just through these hires, but specifically through the center and specifically through the Race Before Race Collective. And so already Race Before Race, you know, has has obviously uh, created paths for many scholars, but there's a pen book series, Race Before Race, right, that's coming out with incredibly, you know, uh, really outstanding work. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the future of the field. With all of that said, I think I think the caveat is I, I'm, I'm like many, right, incredibly worried about the tenor of our, you know, the political reality in our nation and the attempts to silence critical race studies. And, and you know, where I, I often thought, like, I will never, you know, <laughs> be afraid to wear that badge on my arm. And, you know, this is something that I will I will put forward. I, I do find myself, right, it, it gives me pause at different moments and thinking, like, how is this going to be received? And, and more importantly, right, you know, um, thinking about educators who are on the front lines of that, as I mentioned before, in, in terms of, of, of not trying to push them into doing something that is that is precarious for them. Uh, at the same time, I mean, this is the only way that these battles, you know, matter. And so it's 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 it's, it's a tricky point to be in. But but I'm I'm really excited. I'm really excited about the field. I feel like people are on some level finally listening and and attending to these issues and, and i get it I, I you know you you talked about like having honest discussions and ayana's so fantastic at, at at providing right the kind of like you know the nuts and bolts surrounding how to do that right but for somebody going into the classroom and if it's a white scholar with predominantly white students i i, I recognize the you know the the reluctance to do that and and to feel comfortable doing that but but again i think the resources are in place you mentioned the sundial before you know, yeah. Take a look at yeah. There, we recently promoted some some of the pieces in there that spoke specifically to pedagogical practices, and I think they're they're worth looking at. I know this book is fresh off the press, but I saw that you have a chapter coming out called "White Anger: Shakespeare's My Meat." Great title for Arthur Little's uh, forthcoming collection, "White People in Shakespeare" from Bloomsbury. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that chapter and more broadly, what other projects do you have coming up? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I will admit, John, I, I you know, I, I don't often say this, but I am incredibly proud of that piece. And one of the reasons is it, it, it's the first piece I've written that required a legal read for the press. So they had to send it out to lawyers <laughs> to make sure there wasn't any libel. Never confronted this in my life, but I felt uh, like, okay, it passed, uh, which was great. But it's, it's dealing, it's dealing with, with, with you know uh, figures in the present moment and and it's it's steve bannon and, and boris johnson and specifically their affinity for shakespeare in their own distinct ways right um and you know i, I have no qualms about calling them out as white supremacists right and these two individuals who really are espousing this kind of sense of, of white nation nationalism right and steve bannon very deliberately doing so he's on tour um so steve bannon interestingly enough people might know he he was one of the producers of, of titus right uh and so he had had an interest in in Shakespeare, but he also is a co-author of a hip hop rap musical that never saw the light of day. That was based on Coriolanus, and it's, it's titled "The Thing I Am." You can, yeah, you I, I, in the piece I, I provide, you know, uh, references to where you can hear a read through of that. <laughs> 
it's extraordinary. I mean, I have to say it's it's it's, it's almost unbelievable, right? But in any case, so th- this this piece is really thinking about the way that these you know white nationalists are are utilizing Shakespeare in their own means of of advancing notions of white supremacy, right? And and then also thinking about ways, close readings, right, of ways that we can we can you know challenge those particular notions, right, and and come to it. But the entire collection that Arthur Little brilliantly is put together here, right, is looking at constructions of whiteness in Shakespeare. So white people in Shakespeare is looking at white studies um, in in and through Shakespeare. And uh, I, I'm very, very excited for the collection to come out and, and for, for it to be out. So um, that was, uh, I, I think, a, a, a you know, very interesting uh, work. Uh, it feels like a lifetime ago, as, as you know, some of these things often, you know, take 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 a long time to, to come out. But uh, I think it's it's close. It's, it's coming close, and so um, yeah, it's it's exciting, and it does. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, it, this 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 is in line with with uh, I think uh, something many of us are recognizing. Right, is is this necessity to interrogate the constructions of whiteness alongside the way we're thinking about other constructions of race? Right. Um, in terms of more recent work, I mean, I've had this on my CV for. for a long time. I almost feel like a falsehood at this at this uh, time. But uh, Shakespeare on the Border is a, is kind of my ongoing project. When when Kyle and 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 John Garrison, you know, uh, approached me about doing this piece for Spotlight on Shakespeare uh, through Rutledge, they 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 described it as a piece that I could do in conjunction if I'm working on a kind of bigger project. But then it became the project, right? And I, I think I, I I put the other side. Uh, so I very happily been going back to to um, Shakespeare on the Border. It's, it's called Shakespeare on the Border, Language, Legitimacy, and the Frontera. And it's specifically thinking about borderland studies and really kind of coming to terms with the fact that I'm, I'm not imagining the border as a metaphor, right? I'm, I'm really thinking about the border itself and how, how we can rethink Shakespeare and you when we think about borderland epistemologies, right? And so it's, it's kind of coming off of a lot of the work that I've been doing leading up to it. Uh, but now... I'm able to dive into it a bit more forcefully. And so I'm excited about it. Okay. We'll keep our eyes out for those projects. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, Ruben. John, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been